Hi, I'm Moshe Zeldman. Welcome to Schmoozen. We live in times of unprecedented change and confusion. The rise of cancel culture, the promises and the threats of artificial intelligence, identity politics, a society where more people are more digitally connected but are feeling lonelier than ever, and a world that seems to be edging towards World War III. I believe that Judaism can shed light on all of these issues. Schmoozing is more than a podcast. It's a platform for a community of thoughtful voices on these important topics. Let's explore together how Judaism can provoke us to deepen our understanding of the times we live in, confront the challenges we face, and bring some light into this world. Okay, so I've decided to experiment with this uh, straightforward approach. I got some feedback from people that rather than interviewing, unless something really amazing comes up or there's a very specific reason to, I'm going to try just sharing my own ideas. Please give me your feedback. So as you probably know, this podcast eventually is going to get into real issues that are facing the world. Uh, gun control, identity politics, climate change. A lot of heavy issues that a lot of people have very strong opinions about. And the goal is to really try and bring a Torah insight, a Jewish perspective on these issues. But the more important first step before unraveling these heavy issues is how do we even approach topics? How do we process ideas? How do we make sure we're being honest? Especially when we're dealing with the really contentious issues. There's a lot of conversations people have. There's a lot of memes and sound bites that go around that we pick up from others that sound good, that sound true. We're bombarded with information all the time. In our own way, we sort of filter out what's relevant, what's not relevant, what seems true, what doesn't seem true. And we form a lot of our values and our decisions around how we process that information. This is a challenge in any generation, but especially in a generation where most of our information comes from the media. Spend all day watching Fox, you're going to get one very specific view of the world. Spend all day watching CNN or MSNBC, you'll get a very different view of the world. It's like, it's hard to imagine we're talking about the same universe. And all the more so when you start bringing in Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the algorithms they use to decide what to put in front of your face. Then, of course, there's also fake news. There's AI renditions of information that aren't even true. There's foreign countries meddling in our media. Let's give you one shocking example. TikTok comes from China. The Chinese version of it, which is called Douyin, is a different version of the app that's unavailable for the rest of the world. Tristan Harris, a former Google employee and advocate for social media ethics, says that Twitter makes their domestic version a spinach version of TikTok, while they ship the opium version of TikTok to the rest of the world. He says if you're under 14 years old in China, they show you science experiments you can do at home, museum exhibits, patriotism videos, and educational videos. And children in China were limited to only 40 minutes a day on the app. There was a survey that was done. They asked preteens in China and the U.S., what's the most aspirational career you want to have? In China, the number one choice was astronaut. In the U.S., the number one choice was social media influencer. So it's not just that we have to suspect that different people will have different narratives and we have to know which ones are true. We're being played. 
media has an agenda to get you to believe in a certain thing or the sponsor of whoever their thing is wants you to buy their product and they'll support their channel. We have to learn how to really sift out what's true from what's false about important issues in life and know that we're making rational, coherent decisions. So how do we figure out what's true? How do we process and make sure that we're being honest with ourselves? Problem is, we also all have that part of us that likes to collect evidence that we're right. We all have a cognitive bias. There's a famous poll that was done. They interviewed people after American presidential debates. They asked Republicans who they thought won the debate. The overwhelming number of Republicans would say that the Republican candidate won the debate. Then they asked Democrats, and the overwhelming number of Democrats believe the Democrat won the debate because we see reality through our own lens of our own bias which makes it very difficult to know that we really have a clear, true grasp of reality. So what does all this have to do with Judaism? If you think about it, anti-Semites have been accusing us forever of all kinds of things. We're genocidal, we're racist, we're occupying their land, we're baby killers, uh, we killed their God. <laughs> but if there's one thing we've never been accused of, it's of being stupid. Jews are smart. The National Center for Biotechnology Information has an article on why Jews test higher on IQ tests over any other ethnic group. And when you think about it, there's the Einsteins, the Freuds, all the Nobel Prize winners, the overwhelming percentage of which is Jewish. So is it genetic? Is it cultural? Is it spiritual? Is it about brain power? What is it? Why is it that Jews tend to be smart? So I believe the first hint of the answer we can actually find from Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, who himself was Jewish and was actually quite anti-religious. But here's what he said. He said, because I was a Jew, I found myself free from many prejudices which restricted others in the use of their intellect. And as a Jew, I was prepared to join the opposition and to do without agreement with the majority. Freud is saying that what enabled him to make his discoveries was the fact that he didn't think like the majority. He was able to think independently and reach his own conclusions. Karl Marx, the founder of communism, same thing. He came from a Jewish family and created a completely new sense of a social structure, economic structure. And regardless of what we think of Karl Marx and communism, it really was a completely innovative way of trying to create a worker's paradise a utopia. The same thing can be said for Einstein. What you begin to see is that it's not a question of IQ. It's not a question of being smart. It's a question of being different, being innovative, thinking outside of the box. If we want to understand the roots of this idea, we can look at the first Jew in history, Abraham. We don't know from the Torah that he was necessarily smarter than anyone else. We do know that he challenged the conventional way of thinking. The Torah describes him as an iconoclast. Jews for centuries have been raising their kids with bedtime stories about Abraham. The famous story is Abraham is a three-year-old growing up in his father's house where his father was an idol manufacturer. He used to manufacture and sell statues. Story goes that one day his father's out of town on business. He tells Abraham to take care of the store for him. Abraham smashes all the idols with a hammer, except for one. He puts the hammer into the hands of the one big idol. His father comes home at the end of the day, walks in the store, he's devastated, everything is in ruins, business is gone. Says, Abraham, what happened? 
And Abraham says, Dad, you'll never believe it. See that one statue over there holding the hammer? The guy went nuts. He went around breaking all the other statues. I couldn't stop him. His father says, you're right. I don't believe it. That doesn't make any sense. We carve the statues ourselves. They're just pieces of rock. They don't do anything. And Abraham says, Dad, you're right. But just listen to what you just said. All they are are pieces of rock. They don't do anything. So why do people worship them? Why do people pray to them? Why do people bring sacrifices to them? Why do people sacrifice their children to them? They don't do anything. There's no evidence that there's a rain god or a moon god or a sun god. So what's the message of that story? When we raise our kids with stories like that, what's the message we're trying to teach? I remember when uh, I told that story to one of my daughters when she was very young, and I asked her, I said, what do you think the message is? What's the Torah trying to tell us? So she shrugs her shoulders and says, I guess we're supposed to smash idols. <laughs> so I said, no, that's not really the message. The message is don't just accept what anybody tells you, even your parents. You have to think for yourself. We see that Abraham not only challenges his parents, not only challenges his society, he challenges God. God comes to Abraham at a later point in the story and tells him that he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham argues with God. Will the judge of all earth not act justly? You're going to kill a whole city if there's 50 righteous people? What if there's 45? What if there's 40? Abraham argues with God. Abraham is willing to challenge his parents. He's willing to challenge his society. He's willing to challenge God. So much so that the Torah ends up giving Abraham the appellation Avraham Ha'ivri, which we find in the English translation as Abraham the Hebrew. What does it mean, the Hebrew? Why is he called the Hebrew? Why is he called Ivri? The word Ivri is the word over. It's the same word in Hebrew, the same root. The word over means to cross over. The Torah is describing Abraham as a person who stood against the whole world. He lived in a world where everybody believed in many gods. He was the only one who had come to the conclusion that there's one God. And he was so clear on his convictions that he was willing to stand up to the whole world and tell them, you're all wrong. He was so convinced of his convictions that when the king Nimrod threatens him and says, Abraham, you know, I'm one of the gods here. You're denying me as a god. We, we can't tolerate you. We're going to throw you into a furnace. We're going to burn you alive unless you renounce your beliefs. Abraham says, go ahead, do whatever you want. I know I'm right. You're not a threat to me. I've got God on my side. Abraham gets thrown into a fire, miraculously survives, unscathed, and walks right out. So whether you believe the story or not, whether you look at it as mythology or not, that's not the question. The question is, why are we teaching our kids these stories? What's the message we're trying to pass along? The message is, think for yourself. Don't let society dictate your values. Don't become a puppet of the people around you with their opinions. We see on the news all the time these days, Palestinians throwing rocks at cars, acts of violence in the streets of Jerusalem. So you look at this 12-year-old Palestinian kid who's willing to risk his life and throw rocks or try and stab somebody. He knows there's a good chance he's going to die. He so clearly believes that he's right, that he's going to be a shaheed and be a martyr and go to heaven and get a special prize from Allah. He's so convinced he's right that he's willing to die for it. He clearly has a strong conviction also. We look at him 
And we probably say, kid, what do you know? Why in the world would you believe you're right? You've spent your whole life being raised in a refugee camp or going to a mosque with an imam telling you every week, the Zionists deserve to die. They stole our land. It's a special merit for you to die in the name of Allah and kill Jews along the way. We look at that kid and we think he's simply brainwashed. But imagine that 12-year-old kid came to you and said, listen, let's have a dialogue. You believe this is your land. I believe it's my land. You know why I believe it's my land? Because I grew up here. And so did my father. And so did my grandfather. And so did my great-grandfather. We go back many generations before the Zionists ever showed up. We've been around a long time before Ben-Gurion or Herzl or the Declaration of the State or there was some UN vote. We've been here for centuries. How long have you been here, Mr. Goldstein? <laughs> Where do you come from? Your parents, your grandparents came from Poland or from somewhere else in Europe or from Morocco or from Syria. You were escaping anti-Semitism and you came here to build a Jewish state on my land. So if we don't have a clear, immediate way of answering their question and showing them that, no, this is our land, if it's not clear to us for historical reasons, moral reasons, legal reasons, then it could be that we are just as much brainwashed into our Zionism as the Palestinian is brainwashed into his anti-Zionism. One place where you clearly see this phenomenon today is on the streets of America and in the campuses. The atrocity that everybody is up in arms about is Israel's invasion of Gaza and all of the deaths and all the casualties of all the Palestinians and the outrage against the Israelis for committing genocide. Genocide? The Palestinian population, according to Palestinian sources, is growing by over 100,000 people a year. How exactly do you call that a genocide? If you want to talk about genocide because several thousand Palestinians have died in an Israeli defensive war, then how do we understand Western Sudan? There are government-sponsored militias that have conducted a calculated campaign of slaughter, rape, starvation, and displacement. 400,000 people have died due to the violence, starvation, and disease. Two and a half million people have been displaced from their homes. Look at the civil war in Syria. 450,000 Syrians have been killed. 4.8 million have become refugees. But no, that doesn't matter. What matters is Israel, in a war of defense, trying to uproot a terrorist threat are somehow a worse atrocity. There was a famous study done at one of the top American universities in the 1970s called the Five Monkeys Experiment. The researcher puts five monkeys in a cage. In the cage, there's a ladder. At the top of the ladder, he puts in some bananas. But the ladder is rigged in a way that the minute the monkeys start climbing the ladder, when they get to a certain step, it sets off an electric trip and all the monkeys in the cage get splashed with cold water. So they don't know this. They're sitting in the cage. They're minding their own business. The researcher puts in the bananas. The monkey starts climbing up the ladder. As soon as he hits that ladder, the water get, comes down, they all get sprayed with water, so they know we don't do this. Even the next day, one of the monkeys tries again, all the other monkeys stop. They know. They learned. Here's where it gets interesting. The researcher then takes out one of the monkeys and replaces him with a new monkey. So now, the next day, bananas get put on top of the ladder. This new monkey, of course, wants to eat his bananas. He starts climbing the ladder. What happens, of course? 
all the old monkeys pounce on him and stop him from climbing up the ladder. He has no idea why. All he knows is, I guess we're not supposed to get bananas. So he also just complies and ends up not getting the bananas. Here's where it gets really interesting. The researchers then take out another one of the old monkeys and replace him with new monkey number two. Next day, bananas come into the cage. New monkey number two starts climbing up the ladder. And guess what? All the old monkeys and new monkey number one all pounce on him to stop him from getting the bananas. New monkey number one has no idea why he's doing it. He just knows that's the thing to do. They end up replacing monkey number three, monkey number four, monkey number five. In the end, you have a situation of five monkeys, none of whom have ever had a recollection of being sprayed with water, sitting in a cage, looking at a pile of bananas and not touching them. We have to ask ourselves, am I sometimes that monkey? Are there any things that I believe, not because I've examined it, not because I've heard both sides of the argument, not because I've done any research. It's just you grow up in a certain part of the world, you go to a certain kind of school, or your parents plop you in front of certain TV shows, or your Facebook feed gives you certain kinds of messages. You end up just accepting things as true, having no idea if they actually are. So this picture of Abraham as the founder of Judaism created a certain culture in the Jewish people, because these are the fundamental stories we read and we reread every year. The founder of Judaism is teaching us, argue, challenge, don't accept things until you know they're for sure true. That culture permeated Judaism to the point where that's what it means today for Jews to study Torah. I went to a university where typically a professor would give a lecture, you would take notes, you go to the library, you would study, and you would then be tested on the information. Your goal was to repeat back that which the professor taught you. And yes, there's some room for discussion, there's some room for debate, there's some level of being original and coming up with your own thoughts, but it's largely your ability to parrot back that which you have been taught. When I walked into a yeshiva, a Beit Midrash, a Jewish study hall, for the first time in my life, in my 20s, I was shocked by what I saw. A room full of people passionately arguing. They are studying the Talmud, which is a compilation of not just all of the laws that comprise Judaism, but also the way the laws were derived, the arguments that led to those conclusions, the different positions that the different rabbis had. So when you're sitting and studying Talmud, you're hearing a statement from a rabbi, you're, hearing, you're reading another rabbi who's arguing with them, and you have to really hear both sides of it. Why is Rabbi A saying this? Why does Rabbi B disagree? And the only way you can understand the flow of the argument is by really putting yourself in the shoes of those rabbis. You have to explore the context of where they're coming from. They're forcing you to compare alternatives. They're asking you to weigh out the evidence on both sides, to consider the implications of the arguments, to understand the nuances of the differences of the opinions. It reminded me a lot of when I studied Greek philosophy and you read the stories of the great Greek academies of Plato and Aristotle, people coming and arguing. It was a marketplace of ideas. It was open to every possible argument. That's what it means to process ideas, to be willing to hear sides, to be willing to process, to be open to changing your mind, to really weighing out the merits of the arguments on both sides and reaching what you believe is your own honest conclusion. My favorite depiction of this is from Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik from Yeshiva University. He wrote this when he was already older. He says, 
Whenever I entered a classroom, which is crowded with boys who could be my grandchildren, I entered the classroom as an old man. I'm old, with a wrinkled face and eyes reflecting fatigue and the sadness of old age. When I enter a classroom, I sit down, and opposite me are rows of boys, young boys with beaming eyes, beaming faces, clear eyes, radiating the joy of being young. Always when I enter, I enter in a very pessimistic mood. I always enter the class in despair. And I ask myself, every time I enter the classroom, can there be a dialogue between an old teacher and young students? Between a Rebbe in his Indian summer and boys enjoying the spring of their lives? I start the class. I don't know what the conclusion will be. Whenever I start the class, the door opens and another old man walks in and sits down. He's older than me. All the students call me the rabbi. He's older than me. He's my great-grandfather. His name is Rabbi Chaim Brisker, without whom no Torah class could be delivered nowadays. Then the door opens quietly again, and another old man comes in. He's older than Rabbi Chaim. He lived in the 17th century. What's his name? The Shach. He has to be there any time a monetary case is being discussed. And then more visitors show up. Some of the visitors lived in the 11th century, some in the 12th, some in the 13th. Some lived in antiquity, Rabbi Akiva, Rashi, Rabbi Nutam, the Raiva, the Rashba. More and more come in, one after the other. Of course, what do I do? I introduce them to my pupils, and the dialogue commences. Maimonides says something. The Raivad, contemporary of Maimonides, disagrees, and sometimes he's really nasty. Very sharp, harsh language he uses against Maimonides. A boy in the class jumps up to defend Maimonides against the Raivad, and the boy's fresh, so the language he uses is improper. So I correct him. Then another jumps in with a new idea. The Rashpa, another medieval rabbi, smiles gently. I try to analyze what the young boy meant. Another boy intervenes. We call upon Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's grandson, to express his opinion. And suddenly, a symposium of generations comes into existence. I was once walking through the old city, and I saw a tour guide with a group, and he was explaining something. And he said, you know how it is, two Jews, three opinions. So one of the guys in the group put up his hand and said, no, you got it wrong. Not two Jews, three opinions. It's three Jews, four opinions. Tour guide said, yeah, you just proved my point. <laughs> so if it's two Jews, three opinions with rabbis, it's two rabbis, 12 opinions. Not just because we like to argue, but because we're passionate about trying to find truth. We're willing to look at every angle, every possibility to figure out what reality actually is. So the Torah is teaching us that one of the key elements of critical thinking is intellectual independence. The problem is we start absorbing ideas from our parents, our friends, our teachers, the media from a very young and impressionable age. And it's only when we become teenagers that we notice that there are people from other cultures, traditions, religions, political perspectives that think very differently than us. If we don't go out of our way to challenge the stuff we've been fed, we have no way of knowing that we're right about anything. The next chapter of Abraham's life, described in Genesis, is God appearing to him and commanding him. He says, Abraham, lech lecha. Go for yourself. He says, go from your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
Why is God saying he has to leave three times? He has to leave his land, his birthplace, his father's house. So there's many commentaries on this, but one of my favorites is a commentary that explains it like this. Telling Abraham to leave his land means leave the general culture that you came from. We know that if you grow up in America, you think like an American. You grow up in Africa, you think like an African. You grow up in Taiwan, you'll think like a Taiwanese. So leave that general culture. Don't assume that the culture you came from is any better or any truer than any other culture. Number two, leave your birthplace. What does that mean? It means the family values that you got in your childhood, the way you were raised in your particular family, the values, the behaviors, the culture of your particular family. And leave your father's house would mean not just that, mean even leaving the very things your father gave you, your parents gave you, your genetic disposition. Think about it. We all have certain genes that incline us to behave in certain ways, right? Just because dad's an alcoholic doesn't mean I have to be an alcoholic. In Abraham's case, just because dad's an idol worshiper doesn't mean I have to be an idol worshiper. Just because my dad and my grandfather and my great-grandfather were doctors doesn't mean I have to be a doctor. We have to be able to go beyond what we inherited, challenge it, not be limited by it, and be open to all possibilities to see what truth really is. I'll end on one last point that to me is a blow away. <laughs> I mentioned earlier the idea of the five monkeys experiment. I taught that experiment. I've shared that story to many, many audiences over many, many years. I taught it in leadership classes because it really is about being independent, thinking for yourself. And it's an important idea for leadership. It's an important idea for being a responsible human being. So I've shared it with hundreds of audiences. For this podcast, I wanted to actually look up the source of the story, which, where was the experiment done, which university, which year, which journal was it published in? And what does it turn out? The experiment never happened. It was made up by somebody as an anecdote. It ended up morphing into something people believed actually happened. You'll find many YouTube videos. You'll find many Google searches that show up as the famous five monkeys experiment. If you dig a little deeper, you'll see that it never actually happened. So the very experiment designed to explain the dangers of accepting false belief is itself an example of accepting a false belief. I was a victim of it too. So as we continue in this series, I want to drill down more into this question of how do we think about stuff? And today we've really covered the first angle, which is social conditioning. How to step out of sight of society, how to question even the basics and the fundamentals that we assume to be true and really begin to think for ourselves and develop our own coherent picture of reality. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, and also leave feedback if you liked the content, and especially if you didn't. These are important conversations, so let's keep schmoozing.